0: Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that anytime you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Tonight's scripture reading will come from 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my role in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain from freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of condition. Each was called. There let remain with God.
1: Good evening, church. It's good to see everybody here tonight at this evening service. I hope it finds you blessed, and I hope it will bless you. It's been a wonderful privilege to be able to sing these songs together, and I hope you feel the same way. Uh, worshiping God is, is the best. Being in the presence of the church while we worship God, what a great blessing and privilege. Uh, we have been all year long um, just... Plodding our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, with the exception of summer series, but uh, before and after, going through this wonderful letter of Paul, sometimes difficult letter of Paul. And we are in the seventh chapter tonight, the second part of our sermon through 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, those that were not here last week, I encourage you to get online either on Facebook or ...or on the church's uh, YouTube channel and, uh, and to go listen to what you've missed or watch what you've missed. Because I won't be repeating all of that. But I do want to remind everyone that uh, there is a certain structure that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7... ...that is called chiastic structure, the use of a chiasmus there. And that comes from the Greek letter chi, C-H-I I often pronounced chi in fraternity world. But it's the letter chi, which is shaped like an X... And so this particular literary structure, which was uh, very commonly used in Hebrew literature, commonly used throughout the Old Testament, often used in the New Testament uh, far more often than we often realize, because it's half of an X. And so you have parallels at each level centered around a main central thought or idea. And and when the, the text is organized this way, We are to see supporting points, contributing points, and conclusionary points centered around this one central idea. if we're going to understand everything that's said there, we need to recognize that central idea. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul begins by talking about the value of celibacy. And he ends the book by affirming that there is in fact value in celibacy. For those that are not familiar with that term, some of our kids maybe, that means that you don't get married and you remain living a single life all of your life. That's what celibacy basically means. And so Paul says that it's perfectly okay for Christians not to get married, to choose that, and actually to embrace that as a way that they decide that they want to serve the kingdom of God. Paul also says in the second section of the letter there, that it is good and right to get married. And if you're a person that, that deals with, with sexual temptation, you especially need uh, to get married because that's God's um, way for you to, to settle those needs and to see through that they're met. And comparing to that, after the central point of the chapter, Paul speaks to the unmarried. And he says some things uh, by way of instruction to them. And the center of the letter is verses 17 through 24, which is where we're going to pick up in our study tonight. Where Paul really gets the central idea across of kind of the ethic behind or or the, the principle behind everything that he's saying in this chapter. So picking up then in the text, the apostle Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And that would mean to him or to her, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, meaning someone of Jewish ancestry, maybe even a Gentile convert, a proselyte, or God-fearer that had uh, gone through that uh, ceremony? Um, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. There was, historians tell us, a way Uh, That some of the Jews figured out how to have a surgery that would kind of make them appear uncircumcised, especially in environments when they felt they would be persecuted for that by Gentiles. And that was not something that was very highly respected among the Jews, but it was certainly sometimes done. Uh, He says, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. In other words, that the Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ, that were obeying the gospel, were not required by God to become Jews and and to submit to the law of Moses in order to be right with Jesus. That did not matter. And, And Paul says this in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but listen, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, this is right in the center of this chapter. This is in, you know, the core of the X. This is the central point of the chiasmus. Right here in the midst of it, Paul says, this is what matters. This is the point I'm trying to get across to you. This is what you need to learn if you're going to be able to understand the Bible's teachings about sex, about celibacy, about marriage, about divorce and remarriage, about widowhood, and frankly, about all of life in general. You need to understand that being a disciple of Jesus, as we talked about this morning, that the first step of that is to recognize and trust Jesus for the true and righteous and master teacher that he is, the Son of God, and to obey him, and to obey him, to make a good faith effort to live in obedience to his will. And so Paul says, whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, whether you have the the racial markers of this group or the racial markers of that group, none of that matters. The only thing that matters in the kingdom of God is keeping his commandments. And so each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? This means a slave. Now we know today that uh, the slave population in the city of Rome outnumbered those who were free. We know that a great many of our Christian brothers in the first century were in fact slaves. In fact, many historians will teach us that the majority of Christians in the first century were slaves. And of course it wasn't like the the slavery that existed in America which became something that was exclusively a racist sort of thing. In the Roman world, slavery was an equal opportunity endeavor. There were slaves of every ethnic group in the Roman Empire. But they were nevertheless slaves. Now there were certain differences in the practice of the Roman government with regard to slavery that would enable the particularly diligent and the particularly capable and wise to actually earn some money as slaves and eventually even buy their freedom. And so even though we would never say that slavery was ever God's intentions for mankind, slavery in the ancient world was a little different than what we think of in America. America. And I want to make sure that everybody in the room, when you're reading what the Bible has to say about slavery, you recognize the difference, okay? You recognize the difference. Because the Bible actually, as one of its central features, celebrates slavery by choice as a beautiful way that one would express his or her loyalty to Jesus Christ. This morning in the sermon, as we talked about discipleship, and we've begun our series about that, at one point in the lesson, we, we talked about the fact that we need to say to ourselves, and it needs to, needs to be more than words. We need to decide that Jesus is our master. Jesus is my master. I am a slave of Christ, and I've chosen that. He is the master I want. And what we need to understand about life in this world is that we will serve something or somebody, and there's no way around that. And ultimately, the world, Satan through the world, will give us any number of ways to serve him, most of which are not, at least obviously, on the surface, devil worship. There's only one way to serve Christ. That's through faith, responding to the word of God, and striving to make that effort to obey Jesus and recognize his lordship. And so listen, Paul says, were you a bondservant, were you a slave when called, when you heard the gospel and you received it and obeyed it, were you a bondservant? He said, don't be concerned about it. I recognize that's mind-blowing to lots of folks in America today. But because it is mind-blowing, we need to ask ourselves what is really important in life. And this is one of the, I guess, central teachings of this chapter. Notice, Notice what he says, but... If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, Paul is not saying, I love slavery and I wish everyone was a slave. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that being a slave in no way keeps you from serving Christ. You can serve Christ in faith no matter what your fellow man does to you. And this is something we need to remember. And notice the principle he gives here beginning in verse 22, uh, highlighted in orange there. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, is a freed man of the Lord. In other words, Jesus has set you free, maybe not in the physical sense, but in your spirit, in your soul, and your mind, he has set you free. And you know that the, 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 that the bonds that are placed upon you by your fellow man in this fallen world are temporary at best. And that one day... You may actually be standing with Jesus in judgment, being glorified, being given the crown of victory, a robe put on you, brought up to become a priest and a king to reign with Jesus forever. And you may even be looking down on the one who was formerly in your life, Master, if he is not a child of the Lord, and see him in chains being taken away to hell. And so Jesus is speaking through Paul and saying that, yeah, if you can get free, get free, but free your mind. Free your spirit. Understand that nobody can stop you from serving Jesus no matter what change they put on your physical body. Notice this. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. I was free when called. A free man when I heard the gospel and obeyed it. And I have accepted the lordship of Jesus and I am his bondservant, his slave. And I intend to be forever. And it is my delight and joy to say that that is true. Notice what he says. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Does this mean those that were bondservants have got to revolt and, and rebel? No. Many today would say that they would think that that would be the right thing to do. I'm going to tell you biblically, that was not the right thing to do. The right thing to do was to serve Jesus in that scenario. And folks doing that, even though it took way too long, but those that did that were sowing the seeds of the undoing of the institution of slavery in Western civilization. The Lord knew what he was doing. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, let me say something about this just briefly before we move on. Uh, and, and that is, it does not mean that, uh, that when you become a Christian, everything about your life just stays the same He's saying if God has called you while a slave, that's not his concern. If God has called you while free, that's not the primary concern. All of this is an illustration to teach us about the questions about celibacy and sex and marriage that dominate the questions the Corinthians were asking, which led to the inspired writing of this chapter. And so the chapter is really not so much about slavery or, or freedom as it is about marriage or not being married. It's about whether or not it's right to be in the bonds of holy matrimony as a Christian. And there were questions related around that that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And so he's saying to the folks there, look, if you were called to Christ as a married person, then you need to stay married. Now, it doesn't mean that your role as a husband or wife doesn't need to be changed according to the new teaching you're learning from Jesus about how to be a husband and wife. Because I'm going to tell you, pagans don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. So of course you needed to be transformed and renewed. If you were a servant, a slave, you needed to learn how a Christian would do that. Imitate Jesus and his willingness to become a slave in the sense of giving his life to die for us and to serve God and not to serve his own intentions. But these social institutions were not things that Christianity was upending or destroying or ruling against in its essence And so Paul is saying to the brothers and sisters there, he's already spoken to the married. We saw that last week. He's saying marriage is good. Yes, he wants as many as possible to be celibate. Not that he has anything against sex or marriage, but because that creates people who are exclusively devoted to Christ and the kingdom of God. And Paul considers that a good thing. He really does. But he's saying marriage is good, and it is right, and it is holy. And if you think that as a married man, now that you're in Christ, that you're going to be able to serve Jesus better by being free, and you're trying to get Paul to give you permission to violate your vows, Paul is going to say no. Paul is going to say if if God wanted you to serve him as an unmarried man, he'd have called you long ago. But he didn't call you until you were married. Therefore, we need to recognize the role of providence in uh, the way that we come to Christ and the way that we're called to serve him. If you were married when you answered God's call. All this talk of celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7 is for you merely an intellectual exercise. God wants you to keep your vows if at all possible. <coughs> Pardon me. Let me swallow this frog down real quick. And we'll get back into the text now with verse 25. Now Paul continues. Now concerning the betrothed. Now he's going to talk now to the unmarried. If you remember the chiastic structure. Now he's speaking to the unmarried. Okay? Now concerning the betrothed, that is people who are engaged and not married yet, I have no command from the Lord. Now Paul says this flat out. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has given Paul no specific instruction about what to say to folks who are unmarried, particularly probably divorced in this section, or widowed. It's not, the Lord hasn't told him anything. So listen to what Paul says. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I just want to ask you a question. Was the Holy Spirit overseeing the process of this chapter being written? Think so? I think so. Are you an apostle? No, not in the official sense, you're not. So nobody on God's green earth has the right to argue with Paul. If he says in this context, I think that in view of the present, he thinks, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, who is more trustworthy than the Apostle Paul other than the Lord Jesus himself? Right. So this is doctrine. Let's understand this is inspired doctrine. It's the Apostle Paul, he is writing out of the treasure of wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given him. He says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, we'll talk about that in a moment. Something was going on in Corinth which was distressing to the people there. Nobody knows what it was. Most people assume it was some kind of fear of persecution and that's possible because uh, the Nero Nero and persecution in the mid-60s A.D. was soon to come. And undoubtedly prophets had warned the folks there and they were very concerned about that. But we don't know for sure what the distress was. It could have been anything. But it was a big deal and something that affected the whole community there. So he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? That word free, some say loose, is actually in a tense in Greek which refers to a present state that is a result of past action. And so these are not merely talking to those who've never been married. Those are referred to as the betrothed or as virgins in this context. These are people who were married formerly and now have been made unmarried by some act of loosing. Whether a divorce or rather being widowed. He uh, he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. I think this is in light of the present distress of verse 26. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no uh, dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Last week, I mentioned this means... That we are not to grasp on to things in this physical world. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, you know, abandon your wife. That would fly against everything that Paul is talking about in this chapter. He's just saying, understand where your citizenship and where, uh, where it is and where it belongs. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. It doesn't mean it's unrighteous. It just means he has responsibilities to fulfill, which may not always be directly in service to the kingdom of God, at least not in the big-picture sense. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Notice this. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order Brothers and sisters, marriage is the foundation of civilization. And if there will be good order in a society, it will come from the fact that there are good marriages in that society. And if there is disorder in a civilization, it will come because the marriages and the homes are broken in that civilization. And of course, there is no lasting peace in marriage without the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. There's no way to be a good husband or wife without the example of Christ and the church doesn't mean some folks can't figure out how to be at peace and be happy for a while. I'm just saying it won't be the sanctified relationship it's supposed to be. Paul wants there to be good order in the church in Corinth, and that means the marriage is needed to be in good shape. And their theology about marriage needed to be in good shape. And he says, secondly, I want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's worth a sermon all in its own right. Just that statement, but alas, we don't have time. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. there's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There are definitely some cultural differences in the way that we view betrothal or engagement in our world today. Generally speaking, if a man and woman were betrothed or engaged and the man approached the woman or the woman approached the man and said, well, I think we should just like, let's just prolong our engagement indefinitely because I think it's better for us just to remain celibate and give ourselves exclusively to the service of the Lord for an indefinite period of time. How do you think that would go over most of the time in our culture today? Not real well, Right. It probably is going to end the engagement in our culture today. Well, listen, there are a lot of ways that our culture diverges from the mindset of the first century world, not necessarily in sinful ways altogether. But I said last week, and I'll say this briefly again, the valuation of celibacy was much higher in the ancient world than it is today. There was a celebration of people who practiced that kind of self-discipline. They were celebrated both in the church as well as in Greco-Roman society. Our world does not celebrate celibacy at all. In fact, our culture today looks down upon it strongly. And young people are pressured by the culture around us to give up their virginity sinfully, as young in life as possible. What a horrible thing that is, horrible thing. We need to understand the times in which we live so that we can apply these teachings to our lives in the best possible way. So a little bit of a font issue there on the screen. But Paul talks about a present distress in verse 26. And there's something going on that in that situation made it advisable to those who could control their desires not to have to be responsible for anyone other than themselves. And that's one of the reasons why, by implication, I think it probably was the fear of imminent serious persecution. The the persecution of Nero uh, saw the brutal murder of many thousands of Christians in the city of Rome and in the inner portions of the Roman Empire. So anyway, in summary, Paul says, the sanctified single life is always good, but in some times and places during these tumultuous last days, its potential spiritual advantages are even greater. Nevertheless, marriage remains good in all times of this world, regardless of any stress or danger that may come with it. In the final two verses of the chapter Verses 39 and 40, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, you see, Paul is going to close the chiasmus here. He's going to reaffirm the value of celibacy. He says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. This is the principle of the law. And it it's a principle that, it, that is upheld in the Christian system, which is the fulfillment of the law. But Paul is quick to say widows can remarry. But he says only in the Lord, which means what it says. It means only a Christian. Just like we're teaching these kids every Sunday night before worship. And they need to be taught it. They need to be taught it again and again and again. And as I've said many times from this pulpit to those who may have married an unbeliever at some point in the past, I'm not browbeating you at all. But if you understand the difficulties that that decision has brought into your life, then you ought to be, uh, you know, encouraging, teaching children to marry someone who is going to be a partner with them in service to the Lord because there's nothing more important in life. Serving Jesus is far more important than finding marital bliss. And oftentimes, if you find marital bliss at the expense of your faith, it may cost you your faith. And if not you, maybe your children need to keep that in mind. And then there's a final reminder that there are advantages to the celibate life. So now, in closing of uh, this look at 1 Corinthians 7 over these two weeks, I just want to summarize and affirm some things uh, that are extremely important not only about what is taught in this chapter, but but what's taught in this chapter as connected with other chapters or other places in Scripture that speak to the subject of marriage and particularly of marriage and divorce and remarriage. First of all, understand this. New Testament commandments are rooted in God's law, but in no sense is perfect performance required of us because we are not under the law. Obeying the commandments of God, which Paul says in the central portion of this chapter is the thing that Christianity is about. Obeying them is for us a matter of faith. Listen, if I don't believe the Lord's commandments apply to me, you see what's underlined? Enough said. Facts. It is not lawful to divorce For just any cause. It's the very question that Jesus was asked in Matthew 19 and it's parallel Mark 10. He's asked by the Pharisees and experts on the law. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? Without going into those texts for the sake of time. Jesus' bottom line answer is no. It is not lawful to divorce for just any cause. We also see from the New Testament if a divorce is unlawful so is any subsequent remarriage. I know this is true because it cost John the Baptist his head. Now, John the Baptist wasn't talking about Matthew 19.9. He wasn't talking about Mark 10. He wasn't talking about Luke 16. He wasn't even talking about 1 Corinthians 7 or any other passage in the New Testament. He was talking about the fact that the law of Moses didn't grant a woman the right to divorce her husband at all. And King Herod had married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who had legally divorced Philip according to Roman law. And John kept preaching, it is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. And that's what cost him his head. Marriage is not a right. Listen. Young people listen. Old people listen. Marriage is not a right no one has promised one, much less multiple. And God won't make anyone be a good spouse or a faithful one. It's something you have to choose to do or else you don't. Remember the old saying, which is as wise as it's ever been. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it is hard to fix divorce problems. It's a whole lot easier if we don't get into them to begin with. And so, again, I urge all who will be married, marry someone who shares your faith in Christ and your commitment to living according to his teachings with regard to this and every other subject. And remember the warning of Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the bed undefiled. God will judge fornicators and adulterers. It's a sobering statement. It teaches us that God isn't joking about marriage. It's a very serious thing. You violate your vows at your own peril. Take it seriously. I want, to see, I want you to see where I put in the bracket there, undefiled. Hebrews 13, 4, undefiled. The things that I put in this bracket are what I know are undefiled. What goes beyond it, I cannot say except to warn you not to go beyond what is written. On the right hand, you see, I put the arrows right to wrong. If you want to be right, you just stay in the top half of this list. If you're willing to be wrong, you know, by all means, seek not it. Lifelong celibacy is right with God. It meets with the principles of the faith. It is perfectly permissible by Jesus our Lord. Being married once for life is the ideal of marriage. Absolutely, God is pleased with that. Remaining celibate after a failed marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. Again, is acceptable to God, and there's no danger that you have in any way violated the faith or fallen from grace there. Being remarried after widowhood or a scriptural divorce. Paul affirms in this context, you haven't sinned. That's all right with him. You're safe. But everything else is not safe. Not because it's a matter of works-based salvation. Not because we're under the law of Moses, because neither one of those things is true, but because Jesus is our Lord, we're his disciples, we've accepted his rule, and we believe that what he says is right and true, and it is the lot of a disciple to obey his teacher, to obey her teacher, and that is the bottom line behind what the Bible says on this subject. The message is yours this evening if you need to respond to the gospel invitation, either to put Christ on in baptism as an act of penitent faith. We're ready to help you with that. Your sins will be washed away. You'll be added to the body of our Lord. This evening, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, please come forward as together we stand and sing.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again... We thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.